0: Welcome to the Sunday Night Health Show podcast. Tonight on the program, we are talking with Dr. Jason Kinderchuk, who explains what a cluster is and why there is a surge in one of the most vaccinated countries in the world. How about those anti-vaxxers? Dr. Mark Smith, family therapist, explains what the root cause might actually be. And are you hooked on messy loving? It may be a toxic love addiction. You'll hear it here on the Sunday Night Health Show podcast, which starts now. Our thoughts and prayers go out to the victims of Hurricane Ida. The problem in Louisiana is COVID, of course, given the fact that they have such a low vaccination rate. We are certainly thinking of them tonight and watching that closely. Good evening and welcome to the Sunday Night Health Show, the show that educates everyone about sexual health, how it relates to overall health, making your relationships the best they can be. I am your host, Maureen McGrath. I'm a registered nurse, nurse continence advisor, and sexual health Educator, someone who feels like they are just living COVID, COVID, COVID all the time on the daily. If you'd like to be part of the show, the number to call is 877 399 9898 That's one 877 9898 You can text me there as well or email me in confidence at nursetalk at hotmail.com. We are talking about lots of things tonight on the program. We're going to be talking a little bit about messy loving, or could it be a toxic love addiction? Also going to be talking about generalized anxiety disorder, anti-vaxxers. I'm going to be taking some of your questions as well. But uh, although we cover a variety of su- health subjects on the program, the show is certainly not a replacement for a visit to your doctor virtually or by phone. And looks like those are going to be increasing in the near future, as well, given the state of this pandemic and the Delta variant, we have lots to talk about on the program tonight. But right now,
1: and now Maureen's health headline.
0: You have certainly heard his voice before. Some of you think he's my co-host. He's the assistant professor, viral pathogenesis in the Department of Medical Microbiology at the University of Manitoba. Fortunately, he studies emerging and re-emerging viruses, including Ebola and, of course, COVID-19. He's none other than Dr. Jason Kinderchuk. Good evening, Dr. Kinderchuk. How are you this week? You know, doing okay, Maureen. Just uh, you know, certainly
1: my heart goes out to everybody in Louisiana. Just uh, you know, watching some of the videos tonight, uh, yeah, it, it's pretty, it's, it's pretty befuddling to try and and kind of comprehend what they're going through right
0: now. It is absolutely heartbreaking, and you know, given the fact that COVID is surging there, as well yeah. uh, as are the storm sewers. Um, you know, that combination, I mean, dare I say, it's just a perfect storm for disaster and yeah. not exclusively limited to the hurricane itself, but also to those who are fighting COVID-19 in hospitals. Um, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. It, it's tragic. I mean, how COVID-19 has affected so many people in the world in so many different ways, from, from weddings to hospital resources to employment to mental health, emotional health. I mean, it's really uh, shocking that we're at where, where we are a year and a half later.
1: You know, it is and it isn't, right? I mean, and I say that not to try and minimize it, but but more so to think about you know the, the previous context with with uh, past pandemics and, and certainly even epidemics. I, we, you know, we see this, and I think it's one of the things that we take for granted. Is we think that infectious diseases are kind of this you know the, this nuanced thing that are that are on the periphery of everything else that we do, and, and they're not. I mean, they certainly they permeate everything from you know not only health resources to animal health to Economics, everything, and it's um, it really is just difficult to try and surmise, uh, you know, when things are going to be over and and what steps are going to need need to be taken
0: to get to that endpoint. And it's such a shame that this has been politicized. I think that's one of the of the most negative aspects of this pandemic is how political it has become and how. Uh, people are so divided on it. One thing I want to mention is that I, you know, I deal a little bit with this uh, clinically, and I notice that people who either are not vaccinated or fail to disclose their vaccination status because they don't want to, once they are exposed to somebody with COVID-19 or start to get a runny nose or a sore throat, they're panicking,
1: which is so strange.
0: You know, but I think that goes again with, with what we've seen
1: with certainly with other diseases, certainly in, in uh, West Africa, from my experiences with uh, with the Ebola epidemic. We saw the same thing. Right. We had certainly we had groups that that did not believe the virus was real. Um, but when there was a potential exposure, or there was a potential case within their communities. Um, the the nervousness got ratcheted up to, to 10 very very quickly and I think that's one of the facts that, that we see that you know there is this belief that we are somewhat immortal and immune to things I think that many of us you know have that feeling from time to time and the unfortunate side is that when that world comes collapsing in around you uh, it, it can be very very difficult to, to try and uh, and
0: comprehend Absolutely. And if you have a question for Dr. Jason Kindrachuk, the number to call is one 399 9898 That's one eight seven seven three nine nine ninety eight ninety eight. 399 9898 I wanted to ask you about something. We hear a lot about outbreaks and, out, you know, a COVID outbreak, but what is uh, cluster cases? They're now looking at cluster cases these days. Can you, can you define for the audience what that exactly is? It's a great question, right? I actually had to go
1: through quite a few, quite a few different resources to, to try and get some definitions because they are used interchangeably by, by many different agencies and certainly many different uh, uh, places across the globe, and they really aren't, right? So, you know, looking at certainly what Saskatchewan Health um, had provided and certainly what, what other people do go by, when we look at clusters versus outbreaks, clusters are cases that certainly share a specific time and space, but usually they don't uh, exceed or are very close to what we would see for baseline cases. We don't see a, a massive increase as compared to what would be expected, uh, which would be more in line with what we see with an outbreak. The other thing is that in clusters, there may be some belief that there's an epidemiological link, but it hasn't been demonstrated yet. Whereas for outbreaks, there is that definitive sharing of a source. So, you know, not all clusters are outbreaks. Um but clusters can become outbreaks if it is, uh, you know, certainly demonstrated that there is that epidemiological link uh, in the cases.
0: And so it's a bit of a marker, I would imagine. So if they're starting to see a cluster group um, in, a, in, a, in an area, in a hospital, in an organization, in, an, in a city or town, um, that's kind of a bit of a red flag, would you say?
1: right and we had some of that certainly in uh, in manitoba in you know early fall uh you know kind of late summer of 2020 uh you know in, in the uh, prairie mountain health region where there are clusters of cases that were starting to show up they, there was not yet known whether there was an epidemiological link and you know within a few weeks it was demonstrated that there was so you know usually what will happen is that when those clusters of cases show up then you start to say, okay, we well, need to start doing some secondary screening and some secondary testing and and looking to see whether or not there is a link and, and is there a larger cause for concern here.
0: Dr. Kendrachuk, why do you think we are uh, at the place where we are at? You know, a year ago, uh, people were hoping for a vaccine. We got a number of vaccines. Uh, there was, you know, Operation Warp Speed in the U.S. and, and Canada had a slow start to... Uh, administer vaccinations but certainly caught up and um, but we didn't really expect the anti-vaxxers and and the low herd immunity rates but what do you think um, why why aren't we out of this yet and why are we looking like we're going to be in it for a bit longer and there's a couple of things, right?
1: I mean, one is, and and I think this goes for for all of us across the board. There's an underestimation of what this virus is, and I think that continues to go on for infectious diseases. Viruses are very, very good at what they do. Certainly, well, none of us expected that we would see you know the number of variants of concern that have emerged over the past six or eight months, let alone uh, certainly to see any of these emerge, um, and how quickly you know they've been able to, to circulate across the globe. Then you also have that idea of fatigue that set in I mean, we're all tired right so you get to a point of saying how much longer is this going to go on for what is the timetable what is the end point and the problem is is that our endpoints have to be fluid because we are dealing with something that doesn't necessarily want to uh you know subscribe to, to what we are looking at for, for a timetable so i i think that it's it's all these things coming in at once maureen and then of course Again, and I harp on it all the time, but I think it's so important. It's this idea that we have a large proportion of the population that is not vaccinated. So the longer this virus continues to transmit, the more variants of concern that we see, the harder it is for, for us to get things contained and certainly for us to go back to you know to, to what life used to be like or, or you know is more uh, you know, familiar to us.
0: Exactly. And we've mentioned this before. It's not just the anti-vaxxers. It's also lack of access uh, to vaccines, especially people living in rural areas. Um, and, and also um, just just inaccessibility to the vaccine or supply chain issues. Um, but you know I, I want to ask you just quickly before we go to break um, how well you feel these vaccinations work because I think another thing that people don't understand is even if you're fully vaccinated, you can still get COVID-19. So how well do the vaccinations work and why why must we be vaccinated? <laughs>
1: The vaccinations work great, right? And I say that because when we look at the original endpoints for the clinical trials, the reduction in severe disease and hospitalization has remained extremely high. The decrease in infectivity is still there. It's dropped a bit because of Delta. But what we can say is that the more people that are vaccinated within a community, the lower probability and likelihood there is for ongoing transmission, even with reduced uh, protection from getting infected. So I think that's what we have to look at is that, you know, we we actually have a little bit of balance here that, you know, we can lose a little bit on the infectivity side as long as we get a lot of people vaccinated in, in the community. But we can't uh, just just rest on our laurels with that and, and assume that vaccines alone are going to get us
2: through this.
0: Exactly. And I think people actually feel that, you know, I've, OK, I've been vaccinated. I'm not at risk for getting COVID-19, yes. but that's certainly not true. They can certainly still get it. Lower burden of disease, shorter course of disease as well. Um, but we still have to be careful. One
1: hundred percent, and that's gonna, unfortunately going to be the, the, you know, really the, the way we have to live. I think for a while until we fully get things that are control, not only across our own regions, but across Canada and across North America, and, and certainly globally as as things start to open back up for uh, for travel.
0: I have a quick uh, question for you. I have a caller on the line. Alice in Vancouver, British Columbia is on the line. Good evening, Alice. Hi. Good evening.
3: Yeah, I just have a question about uh, vaccine dosage. Um, I'm a senior and I weigh, I'm really light, under 90 pounds. So, do I get the same dosage as, let's say, a guy who weighs 140 pounds? Like, when I had my first dose, I was really sick. So, is there such a thing as too much vaccine for me?
0: Great question, Dr. Andertuck.
1: Yeah, and really, what we have not seen is is a linkage to to, to weight, right? So uh, when we've looked at at vaccines and certainly through the clinical trials, um, the dosage has been the same across the board because ultimately you're trying to get a a production of protein that your immune system is going to recognize and build antibodies towards. So the illness side and certainly the post vaccination effects um, are more about the individual specifically, and, and usually they're, they're kind of underlying. Um, you know, risk to, to short-term uh, adverse events from vaccination. So, it, it isn't linked necessarily to weight. It's more linked to a lot of other uh, factors within within the individual.
3: Okay. So, there's no such thing as too much vaccine for a person who, who weighs like uh, only a certain pounds. Like I, I we, may weigh the same as a guy who's only 18 years old.
1: Yeah. No. Or he may it's, it's be even right.
3: heavier than me. But he and I will be getting the same dosage. Is that correct? Do we all get the same dosage?
1: Absolutely, and in the oh. phase one and two trials, the phase one specifically, they look at, at safety and, and really you know, go back to using usually higher dosage in those studies to try and ensure that safety is, is maintained for people.
3: Okay, and so the first and second dose, um, dose the dosage is the same?
1: Dosage is the same.
3: Okay, all right, okay. Thank, thank you so much for answering my question.
0: Welcome back to the Sunday Night Health Show. Maureen McGrath hosting this program. My guest is Dr. Jason Kinderchuk. He actually has a real PhD. (laughs) Not one from Facebook like a lot of uh, people out there seem to have picked one up. Um, Assistant Professor, Viral Pathogenesis, Department of Medical Microbiology at the University of Manitoba. Um, Dr. Kinderchuk, Israel was the first country to fully vaccinate a majority of its citizens against COVID-19. And now it seems to have one of the world's highest daily infection rates, which is about 7,500 confirmed cases a day. And it's doubling as as every two weeks, it seems. Um, Nearly one in every 150 people in Israel today has the virus. What happened, and what can we learn about the vaccine's impact on a highly vaccinated country?
1: Yeah, it's, there's a lot to unpack there, right? So, you know, I think the first thing that that certainly you know we we always have to appreciate is that when we talk about being highly vaccinated, one of the things we have to consider is what is that vaccination rate as compared to, uh, you know, certainly what we understand about the transmissibility of of the variants. We look at Delta. Certainly, we know that herd immunity threshold rises pretty rapidly. And, you know, we're talking, you know, 85 percent, you know, probably higher than that, depending on, uh, on, you know, a variety of different factors. So we start to get in this position of saying highly vaccinated is not necessarily what highly vaccinated truly is at this moment in time. So that, that's part of it. Um, then we get into the larger questions of saying, OK, well, what was the population? That was immunized uh, originally, and what were their age groups, and how have uh, you know how their immune responses looked over time? Because when we think about first people that would have been immunized in Israel; those would have been people that would have been highest risk for for severe disease. So we get into a position of then saying, okay, well, in that demographic, um, what is the you know the likelihood of immune wane over time, and does that also mm-hmm. reflect back to the rest of the population? And then, of course. The background of all this, we also know that the vaccines are not, and they never are going to be, 100% protected against getting infected. So you can have cases, but the real question is the severity of disease and, and hospitalizations, and are you seeing that that's reflected in your vaccinated groups, or is that still skewing uh, you know, prominently towards those that are unvaccinated?
0: And, you know, vaccines are critical, but they are not enough, and we're seeing yeah. uh, mask mandates being put back into place uh, in many cities and, and uh, across the country. And I think we're probably gonna be living that way for a long time. Um, yeah, well, Dr. Kinderchuk, thank you so much for once again joining the program. Uh, we'll see what transpires between this week <laughs> and next. <laughs> Hopefully you'll exactly. be joining us again next week. Yes, I'm sure it will. Thanks so much, really <laughs> appreciate your me. contribution always. You're very welcome. Welcome back to the Sunday Night Health Show. Maureen McGrath hosting this program for you. I mean, this pandemic has gone on for a year and a half. Our lives have changed significantly. We may all be traveling on the same in the same ocean or on the same ocean, but we are definitely in different vessels. And anxiety seems to be rearing its ugly head. Anxiety prior to the pandemic was the number one mental illness in North America. Joining me on the line to talk about anxiety during this pandemic is Mark Smith. He is a family therapist. Good evening, Mark. Hey, Maureen. How are you? I'm fine, thanks. How have you been? It's been a while. I know it has been. I'm doing well. Thank you. Yeah. Oh, that's great. I'm glad to hear that. Well, thanks so much for joining me on the program tonight. Um, I I initially kind of wanted to talk to you a little bit about And I I don't really like to single out, I don't like to call them anti-vaxxers. I prefer to call them non-disclosure people. They don't want to disclose their vaccination status. Yep. but it seems to me that is a bit of an issue in this pandemic uh, in part because it's been politicized a lot of people are afraid of the vaccination although they've had 18 before they if they ever went to traditional school they needed about right. 18 vaccinations to get in um, so they're afraid there's a paranoia about microchipping people actually believe that we're being microchipped uh, there's this anti-government sentiment there's conspiracy theorists some people feel we're in a large government experiment. I, I'm, I'm curious if these reasons that people do not want to get vaccinated or don't, don't want to believe in the COVID or the pandemic, um, could they be related to anxiety? Yeah, I, th- I think that um, the general population is
4: stressed just due to the, um, the um, self-isolating due to COVID, as well as just the general threat of COVID. And if you think of anxiety, um, you know, one way to define it would be um, a fear response to a real threat or a perceived threat. And I think that there's so much unknown about COVID. You know, you can't see it. And, um, you know, you sort of hear echoes of terrible things or, you know, whatever. There's a lot of perception that may or may not be uh, well grounded, but, you know, there are elements of truth to it. And so people's, I think that people's perspectives can be, um, you know, perhaps not always be um,
0: quite um, clear
4: or objective.
0: uh, Absolutely. Um, I just want to say out there, if anybody has any questions for the family therapist, I mean, how often do you get access, free access to a family (laughs) therapist? We all need one. Exactly. (laughs) That's for sure. (laughs) In my family, anyway, for darn yep, sure. Yep. Uh, the number to call is one eight seven seven three nine nine ninety eight ninety eight. 399 9898 That's one eight seven seven three nine nine ninety eight ninety eight. 399 Dr. Mark Smith will answer your questions and sort your family right out. Um, so, <laughs> right away, one quick phone exactly. call. That's it. Yep. The family becomes functional. Go from dysfunctional to functional. We always said we put the fun in dysfunction <laughs> in my family of origin. <laughs> When I don't know after, what happened after that. And that's a
4: good <laughs> segue. That? That's a good segue because I think we often think of anxiety being something that is uh, um, resident in the individual. You know, something isn't functioning right or there's something that's you know, not right. And so that person is anxious. But families get anxious and family emotional systems get anxious. And often one person will absorb that or carry that anxiety. Um, And, uh, you know, for for different reasons that we don't have time to get into now. And so, you know, it's important while you think of anxiety in terms of I have a friend who's anxious or a family member. um, You know, it's important to look at the broader system around them because people are responding to that anxious person.
0: Very interesting. Um, I really don't think that I absorb the anxiety in my Irish Catholic, large Irish Catholic family. But <laughs> anyway, <laughs> right? I'm known no as the barely. chill as the chill aunt. Yes, no, no, no guilt whatsoever. <laughs> Tons of it. Um, but yeah. the, you bring up something else. Anxiety is contagious, basically. Would you would yeah, you say that's yeah. a fair statement? Yeah. Well, so, is. what are some of the? Go mm-hmm. ahead. Well, I mean, some of the metaphors that I use with clients.
4: Um, if you just look to other species. You know, you can look at a school of fish, you can look at a herd of cattle, and there will be some uh, fear response at one edge of the herd, and in, in an instant, it will shoot across the whole herd. Or with the school of fish, in an instant, it will shift. But um, on a more human level, if you look at, let's say, a soccer team, a hockey team, The momentum shifts. The other team scores a couple of goals. If it's an experienced team, they can stay grounded. But all it takes is a couple of goals. The players get anxious. They're now not performing their best. And that might lead to another goal. And you can almost see that the play gets scrambly and you can almost anticipate there's going to be a goal. Um, And that's a systemic example of anxiety and how it goes through the
0: group. And you see that in families all the time. Right, very interesting. Now, also, anxiety is not always bad for us either. It can often help us meet a deadline.
4: Yeah, Or
0: You'll see that kind of a uh, curve that gets used in
4: descriptions of anxiety, and when it's on the upside, it can be almost a positive, you know, stress or anxiety can be a positive. You know, the person that's about to go on, on stage, they've got a bit of that juice because they're anxious to get on on stage and they're anxious about it, but it might pump them up. But if they go over the top and get overwhelmed, it might uh, disable their ability to stay, stay grounded. And, and anxiety, and I, again, a metaphor I use with my clients is, um, if you're walking down a dark street or an alley at midnight when it's pitch black and you hear a noise in the bushes, you want that anxiety to kick in because that's your fight-or-flight right. response. But if you're walking down at 12 noon lunchtime and every time you hear a sound you're jumpy, that anxiety is doing you a disservice because it's just overly active. And that's where anxiety becomes problematic.
0: Yeah, very interesting. I, I, my sister is here tonight with me, and she, she was, she was getting nervous for me starting the show, and I, and I'm like, it's in, it's in three minutes. She's like, doesn't it start now? I said, no, it starts in like three minutes. She's like, I would be prepping right up until the, you know, it starts. I said, I've been doing the show for eight years. She said, I've been a university professor for twenty years, and she said, I still get nervous with every yes. single class just before every single class. Um, so we're, we're very different in terms of, um. Uh, the, how that anxiety can affect us. I'm sure she's a much better university prof than I am a radio host. <laughs> anyway, um, so I want to, um, I, I'd like to ask you generalized anxiety disorder. Uh, yeah. Can you define what that is and what the symptoms are?
4: Well, um, you know, a general anxiety disorder is a, 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 a collection of symptoms that would comprise the disorder, not only the duration of the symptoms, but the, the particular symptoms that would categorize it. And it's things like persistent worrying, um, you know, overthinking things, um, perhaps focusing on um, the bad things that could happen and not uh, balancing that with um, the good things or just more of a neutral approach. Um, it might be just that kind of indecisiveness in life or that ambivalence about, well, should I do this or should I do that? And um, But it, it's not, I mean, the average person has a certain amount of that, but I think once mm-hmm. it kicks into an anxiety disorder, um, you know, it's it's a more persistent collection of symptoms. Now, having said that, that's, you know, categorizing it within a a medical model, you know, DSM-5, diagnosis and statistical nano 5 kind of thing. And sometimes it can be challenging to parse out um, the individual's general anxiety disorder
0: from a family general anxiety disorder, right? Interesting. um, I have... Yeah. I have Evelyn on the on the line. Evelyn from Winnipeg on the line. With a question for you, Dr. Sure. Smith. Good evening, Hi. Evelyn.
5: Hi. Good evening. Good evening. Anxiety. Oh my goodness. This is a good this is a good topic for me, but I also have a question <laughs> with regards to uh the the deadline that Manitoba health went through with regards to the vaccines for okay. October. I'm wondering what we're going to be facing with our constituents as, as to how nervous they are if they they don't meet their deadline, that type of thing. You know, it's going to be the end of the world as we know it if they don't get their vaccine. So that's the kind of attitude that we're getting here. Um, Anxiety. I've suffered from panic attacks since 1997. So is panic attacks the same thing as anxiety? Well,
4: I think it's on the continuum, for sure. And I think that a panic attack, I mean, sometimes people... Um, use these kind of diagnostic terms without really you know um, I I don't diagnose people but I would also be careful not to use um, a diagnostic term Um, and so sometimes people throw them around but certainly a panic attack again is a specific kind of high anxiety that often um, culminates in um, you know a very sort of physical or visceral response. I've had clients who you know, they need to. They're they're kind of knocked out for an hour, an hour and a half, as they're going through the panic attack and breathing. You know, their their yeah. chest is pounding, their breath is off, and um, high rate,
5: high high heart rate. That type high of heart thing. rate yeah. exactly.
4: And mm. um, um, you know, some people have ang- have high anxiety, but it's not a panic attack. And for some people, to interrupt the panic attack, they may need to go to hospital. They may, you know, they may need something that will just take the edge off. Although I have heard. Years ago, I was listening to a, um, a radio psychologist who talked about panic attacks, and her her uh, one of the techniques that she suggested um, to take the edge off a panic attack was what she called square breathing. Um, square breathing essentially is um, you breathe in for a four-count, you hold your breath for a four-count, you breathe out for a four-count, and you hold it for a four-count. And not only does that just slow your your, you know, the racing heart and racing breath, but it gets oxygen into your system. It activates your parasympathetic nervous system, which um, uh, signals to your brain that the danger's passed, and it can at least t- you know begin to take the edge off a of panic attack.
5: Well, I've seen, That's I've how- seen it, and I've actually helped with people. But with regards to our Manitoba dilemma with yeah. with our deadlines with the vaccines. What are we gonna look for for weird symptoms? Because I, that, I'm scared. I got all my vaccines, so I'm good. But um, there's a whole pile of people that still haven't gotten theirs. Uh,
0: I think if I dare, if I can say this, we're gonna have a bunch of chihuahuas in Manitoba. They're all gonna be nervous. <laughs> Evelyn, thanks for the call. I've got, a, I've got another caller on the line. I've got Mary from Vancouver Island who also has a question for Dr. Smith. Uh, Mary, hello.
2: Um, I just wanted to reflect back on the um, gold medal soccer game at the rec- women's gold medal soccer game at the recent Olympics.
3: Uh-huh. and in
2: particular the, in particular our goalie who during the shootout, and I wondered if the doctor would say that's an example of somebody, I don't know if she felt anxious, but she was moving, she was smiling, she was so present, she looked like she was enjoying uh, what had to be a ten- tense moments.
4: Yeah, and I think that um, uh, um, she, I, would, I viewed that as her being grounded and her being confident as opposed to anxious. So in other words, her movements were fluid. She was in control of the moment. She wasn't sort of um, um, anxiously moving back and forth or kind of too rigid in her response. So by being fluid and supple, she, her, her muscle memory could kick in and do what it needed to do. Um athletes, um, you know, the, the uh, metaphor used for hockey players when they're anxious is that they're squeezing the stick. They're just trying too hard. And so they're not allowing their muscle memory to take over. And sometimes when we're highly anxious, we're so much overthinking the situation. We're not just relaxing and letting our natural... Uh, wisdom kind of take over whether that's cognitive wisdom or sort of the muscle memory.
0: Welcome back to the Sunday Night Health Show. Maureen McGrath hosting this program. Here I am with Mark Smith, family therapist. If you have any questions for or you need a little therapy, the number to call is one eight seven seven three nine nine ninety eight ninety eight. 399 9898 That's one eight seven seven three nine nine ninety eight ninety eight. 399 9898 Thanks for staying on the line, Mark. Sure, yeah. All right. Um, now, I was thinking. You know, I might not think I'm anxious, but somebody else might. Before we get to the treatments, somebody yeah. else might. So I could be in yeah. denial. <laughs> denial is a drug, as we know. How much does denial impact people getting treatment for anxiety?
4: Well, um, I m- I might frame it a little bit differently. I just I would suggest that when people live in it all the time, they don't realize they're living in it. Um, uh-huh. You know. Um, Years ago, a friend of mine was uh, uh, editing a book that his brother had written, and there was a little phrase at the beginning of the, the chapter. And if I recall accurately, the, the quote was If scientists were fish, the last thing they would discover would be water. Um, <laughs> so when we live in anxiety all around all the time, we just right. have a normal baseline, right?
0: Yes, absolutely. Uh, Maybe I'm living in anxiety all the time. <laughs> You
4: know really <laughs> don't years think ago, I am. A couple of years ago, I was at a conference and a therapist was sharing some uh, research she was doing with uh, clients using um, neurofeedback. So she had all the various family members in the family therapy session hooked up to neurofeedback, and she could see on the screen the bar graphs that would show um, the stress level. And so uh-huh. if a question was asked or a comment was made that got a family member stressed. It would jump up on the scale, you know, up to a 10, but then it would go back uh-huh. to a baseline of zero. But for some people, it didn't come down all the way. It maybe came uh-huh. down to like a four, and, it, and that was their baseline, so they always were living in a, a measure of stress or anxiety. Uh-huh. Now that, that might be something that could be worked at, but they probably f- think that that's just their normal, right?
0: Yes, absolutely. I have Richard in Vancouver on the line. Richard, hello.
4: Yes, Hello. My question how are, to the doctor is: How do I diminish my chronic anxiety attacks? Um, can, well, sorry. Can we give us?
0: Can you give us a little bit more information, um, Richard? You know, no, when you say chronic anxiety attacks, how often are you having them? About three uh, times do, a day. Okay. All right. Well, I think that um,
4: you know, finding finding uh ways to self-regulate can be very challenging and um, I wouldn't want to be I wouldn't want to diminish how significant that can be for people because some people have a very hard time self-soothing or just you know um, regulating themselves um you know you can go if um, there are lots of different grounding techniques for people that have experienced trauma for example they have a whole host of, Different grounding techniques that they use. I had a client years ago who set his clock, uh, like his timer, for two hours, and every two hours he would employ um, a different, you know, like a grounding technique, one that worked for him, just so he can get back to kind of uh, regulating himself. And you know, uh, so there are those those kind of things that um, uh, people can do. Um, but, you know, chronic anxiety is a very tough one to, to, to get over. Now, having said that, as I said a moment ago, there's the anxiety that people experience within themselves and, and yeah, okay, you could say that anxiety generates within the individual, but, um, you know, it is often also systemic so that as you get anxious, people around you may respond to that anxiety and even though they might think they're being helpful, they may contribute to it. So a partner that Tries to give advice to tell you what to do or who gets anxious when you get anxious, it Mm -hmm. doesn't help to diffuse it. It perhaps only helps to to escalate it. And do you know the source? It manifests itself into bursting out into tears and uh, being angry at other people.
0: Right. That's what happens to you? Yeah. Okay. So do you know the source of your anxiety and does that help, uh, Mark?
4: Well, sometimes it does because I think that, um, you know, if we're able to research ourselves and research our lives, make make ourselves a research project, we may begin to learn what triggers anxiety or what tension in a given relationship stirs up anxiety. Or some people are just the ones in the family that absorb the anxiety.
1: You got questions? She's got answers. The nurse is in for Nurse Talk.
0: Maureen McGrath here, registered nurse. If you're in a toxic relationship, you may recognize some of these signs in yourself, your partner, or the relationship itself. Lack of support, toxic communication, jealousy, controlling behaviors, resentment, dishonesty, patterns of disrespect, negative financial behaviors. Joining me on the line, she's ambitious. She's an ambitious women's success coach specializing in subconscious reprogramming to achieve success on her own terms. She is Julia Chong. Good evening, Julia.
2: Hi, Maureen. So great to be How here are? again.
0: Thank you. Oh, I'm so glad to have you back. Thank you so much. I am delighted to talk to you about this subject toxic love addiction because. I think that a lot of people, certainly in my clinical practice, I have seen my fair share of this, people in these types of relationships that are so highly dysfunctional, but they don't realize that it could be a toxic love addiction. Tell the listeners just exactly what that is.
2: This toxic love addiction has two parts. One has the person who has seems to have more power and the other part is the person who feels abused and oftentimes the person who feels abused may not realize they're in an abusive relationship and oftentimes they will push back on the idea or the term itself of what we call abuse but there's a lot of push-pull power struggle and basically that toxic love addiction it works like a magnet So oftentimes what people find is that they can leave a relationship like this, exactly like all the symptoms that you describe. And they know better, they consciously, they logically, often very smart people, they have all these conscious thoughts to do better next time. And then they may meet somebody that just seems like a better option, and then they'll experience the same symptoms that you described all over again. So... There's a part of it that is an unseen magnetic pull, and it feels like almost like an addiction. Which actually, I use the word addiction, and I, I'm not the only person who uses the word addiction. Many people in um, in this area would use the word addiction, and which some professionals really don't like, um, because of what it what we think of addiction as, typically with substance or alcohol. Um, but it does feel like an addiction where there's this pull towards something really negative when it comes to human relationships. Absolutely, so often- and it's
0: fascinating. Oh, go ahead.
2: It's fascinating. Sorry. Um, so oftentimes, when somebody has this kind of pattern in their intimacy, love life, didn't have friends like that that also fit into that. That that really maybe they get very highly criticized or the parents could be needy but not appreciated, um, not respectful. They will also be very uh, prone to falling into toxic war culture.
0: Very interesting. It's fascinating because I hear uh, many people say, you know, they were in a toxic relationship or an abusive relationship and they didn't realize that they were in it and also that they just thought it would get better or they didn't understand what the definition of an abusive relationship was. But you mentioned that it can also be friends um, yeah. that, you know, and I remember I had a friend for a, a long time, um, but... Uh, other friends of mine would say, you know, she's not a friend to you. She's not nice to you. She's mm-hmm. not, she's unkind. The things yeah. that she says, even though she's pretending that she's joking, are very mean. And yeah. and they could see it uh, more than I could see it. And then she became very um, envious and jealous and, uh, I mean, for go- no good reason. Um, and also... Um, then she started to be just so nasty that, but, but I just kept forgiving and thinking, you know, thinking the best. I, I tend to be the optimist. Um, but then I realized she did something that was just so nasty and it was, we have some friends that, that live in Australia And every year they would come back and we'd have a big party and, you know, of like all the friends before the pandemic, obviously, but it'd be like 50 or 60 people getting together because it made it easier for that, for that couple who would come back and, um, you know, get together. And then, so she invited, she arranged the party and she invited like 50 of our, you know, our friends and she excluded us. And, and I, my, that was like the, that was the. The break point for me, mm-hmm. and and it would also I felt it was so mean to do to the friend who was coming from Australia because you know it it put her in a very it made made it very inconvenient for her of course we still got together and you know we had a wonderful day and that's been our tradition for the last couple of years prior to the pandemic of course that just the four of us that you know the two couples get together and the kids and we go out on the boat and you know and so it's been it's actually turned into something very lovely and and we get to because we're very good friends But it was such an exclusion. It was just such a slap in the face that I actually then cut it off finally. And I realized it was just such a release of a burden that I'd been carrying Mm -hmm. around for a long time. So anyway, sorry to go so personal.
2: (laughs) No, it's a great story. I think female friendships are so tricky because, um, you know, it's one of those areas that actually women require a lot of support, but we didn't get it from very early Uh on and and so I feel that most adult women don't really know how to do it so because we don't know the expectations oftentimes we find ourselves forgiving too many times I've been exactly where you've been as well especially this is um, I guess the listeners who really need this are the type of people who are very overly caring overly forgiving highly tolerant who's very accepting of people and Perhaps you you are that person. I also am that person. Totally to really guilty. Learn. Oh yeah, Com- I, I really guilty. To learn how to have yeah. really healthy boundaries without feeling guilty, right? Yeah, um, and, how and, and you do know, have, I, w- yeah.
0: I was just going to say, I I also I I'm not an eye for an eye kind of person, but this this mm-hmm. particular person went through a divorce. I was extremely supportive of her through her divorce. I even had a divorce party for her. We, <laughs> we made her nice. this, chandelier that, that, this chandelier out of, like, ha- coat hangers and vibrators that, you know, she didn't get in the <laughs> divorce. She didn't get the chandelier that she loved. We had this party. We, we had this large group of friends. And, um, you know, it, and then I, I was just so, I, I mean, it, you're just so devastated and you're just so shocked that, um, you know, somebody can be that mean. That somebody yeah. can be that that nasty, but you know, in looking at that as well, um, there were other people that she had treated very poorly. One was a business mm-hmm. um, one was a uh, a business person who was also a friend of mine, um, and somebody else was a good friend that she had done work for. But there, when you added up, there were about ten or twelve people that she had treated, you know, really terribly in in a very toxic fashion. Yeah,
2: yeah, it's a pattern. So have, people have patterns. Yeah.
0: They do, right? 100%. They do. Yeah. So but I, I interrupted pattern, you there, sorry.
2: <laughs> yeah, no, I, I was just going to say that our pattern is also what keeps allowing. So if, if any listener can relate to Maureen's story, the only way we can stop this painful problem in our lives is to change our own pattern.
0: Yes. And to say enough is enough. That's it. You know, I'm I'm a fairly patient and tolerant person. So it was just like, and also like expect the best of people. Um, But you know, this person also had absolutely no I mean, I literally just stopped talking to her, you know, (laughs) I would see her at parties, and she would say hello, and I would say nothing. (laughs) Just and then she would say she hates me. I mean, it was (laughs) little high school. And you know, she would say it to complete strangers, you know, that and, I mean, I just thought, no, that's it. It's over. You know, you just have to basically lasso them, you know, over, I say over the Broad Street Bridge. <laughs> anyway, yeah, a little visual. Absolutely. But, yeah, but especially for people who are in a toxic relationship where they tend to repeatedly get into toxic relationships, uh, intimate relationships, you know, how yeah. difficult is that? That must be terrible.
2: Oh, absolutely. A, a part of the reason why... Uh, we, I suggested this topic going back and forth, uh, leading up to this point here tonight. Uh, it's because women who are quite career-driven often neglect this other area. So um, we don't notice these patterns until we're so deeply entrenched, and it starts to ruin everything we care about. It starts to ruin finances right? Imagine being married to someone like that, right? Who's very financially Uh controlling, who's secretive about finances. You know, there's a lot of power play. The money is is a symbol of power. So there's a lot of power play with money, right? Um, Uh Or even, even if that you are not married to this person, there's a lot of um, giving and not getting enough in return. And that's in every form of resource, money, energy, time, focus, right? Um, Right. Person is a complete drainer, Right. When it comes to your resources, and then for um, the women I've worked with, women who are in this situation, they can't focus on all the things they care about. They can't focus on uh, their career, right? And the career starts to go downhill. And uh, they can't focus mm. on parenting properly if they have kids,
5: right?
0: Right? Yeah, right. Because they're so distracted from oh, yeah. this love addiction, this toxic love addiction.
2: Absolutely, and it creates this, you know, this very ADHD-like symptoms, the lack of focus and not being able to, the feeling of being confused, right? Um, Uh And actually, I've met some people who were diagnosed with ADHD, but it turned out they didn't have ADHD. The problem was the relationship.
0: Wow. Have you been diagnosed with ADHD out there? Maybe it is your boyfriend. If you have a question for <laughs> yeah. Julia, the number to call is 1-877-399-9898. That's one 399 9898 I have a friend who had a, a huge job. She had a massive job that she had to do. And she was so distracted because she had this uh, partner, lover, for about three or four years. And no, I don't think it was that long. Sorry. It was like two years and, um, it was all consuming at the beginning, and and she was the one who had all the money. He didn't have a job and But then, you know, it was all just adoration, and you know, he was just crazy about her. and you know, it just he would post all this stuff, and then he disappeared. And basically, wow. he went back to his ex-wife, actually. and uh, and she was devastated. She was distracted, she couldn't focus, she couldn't do her work. Um, and she was upset, but, you know, I explained it to her. (laughs) I explained to her what was going on. Um, But uh, Julia, I'd like you to hang on the line um, and because I want to come back after the break and ask you what can people do if they find themselves in a toxic love relationship or have a toxic love addiction? Welcome back to the Sunday Night Hell Show. Maureen McGrath here with Julia Cha. She is an ambitious women's success coach Thanks so much for staying on the line, Julia. We're talking about toxic love addiction. How can people, I don't know, begin, (laughs) I don't even know how to ask this question, uh, treat, if you will, or learn to recognize what a toxic love addiction is and, and what can they do about it, basically?
2: Great question. The first step is to realize that you have a pattern. When we see a pattern in our past results, then we can kind of start to see and gain awareness that there is something going on. And because humans are creatures of habits, everything we do has a pattern. We may not recognize the pattern, uh, but we have a pattern. So the first step is to recognize, to become mindful of say tracing back the people you've dated, looking at the pattern there, looking at how you feel around people and Is this a pattern as well or the types of people? The the craziest thing is when you think that this person is probably not like that, when you meet a new person, looks totally different from your last or whoever, and then you realize that they share all the commonalities of all the symptoms that you described earlier this show. So um, seeing the pattern is important. The second thing is I'm just going to tell people why they have this and it's to know why they have it. Mm-hmm. Everything, every relationship that we have, the foundation of that relationship began with the relationship we have with our parents. Especially intimacy. It comes down to we date our most difficult parents. Mom or dad. <laughs> that classic the Freudian thing where it's like, Oh, is it mom and dad or is it is it this or is it that the classic symbol type of thing? Uh, it, is, it does come down to mom or dad. The most difficult parent. I, I think
0: a lot of people out there are saying, now you tell me.
2: <laughs> yeah. Well, I think this, this part is recognized. I think it's, quite a, it's talked about quite a lot. Uh, but sometimes uh-huh. we have a hard time figuring out which is a difficult parent. I think that's the hard part. Because sometimes you have a very outwardly difficult parent. But sometimes there's a very subtly difficult parent. And then all you see is the other parent reacting. So then people perceive that, for example, oh, my mother is difficult because she seems angry all the time, not realizing that the mother was actually in an abusive dynamic, right? So that's why part of it is figuring out which is the difficult parent is challenging. Or sometimes there's a parent who's gone, right? Um, and And then sometimes the difficult parent is, A parent who's worked very hard to provide for you. So then there's a conflict in our mind that we can't really categorize this person as difficult. But when it comes down to it, how much emotional connection and support did you have with this parent?
0: Right, exactly. Maybe some people have too difficult parents as well. Um, and also, how about listening to others around you? Like, I remember my friend saying, um, you know, she's not your friend. She's not nice to you. Don't you see that? Um, but also then, it, the final, the final nail in the coffin was when, um, other people said, wow, they couldn't believe that she had invited all, everybody except for me, you know, except yeah. for us, if you will. Yeah. So um, is it, how, how much is listening to other people who care about you uh, worth it? We do, we have about 30 seconds left, Julia.
2: Yeah. Oftentimes when people have a toxic love addiction, we cannot listen to other people because it's an emotional experience. It comes from yeah. very old emotional hunger. It's like you it's- starved, you were starved for very early, in your early part of your life and So you cannot make those decisions logically.
0: We're going to have to continue this conversation in a future uh, radio segment. Thank you so much, Julia, for joining me tonight. Thank you for having me today. Thanks for listening to the Sunday Night Health Show podcast. You can subscribe, rate, or review on your favorite podcast app. And if you've got a question about your health, the nurse is always in. So email me, at hotmail.com and I just might answer your question anonymously, of course, on next week's show. For now, have a happy and healthy week.